Turn our books now to page 377, and we're at the very last sentence on this page. As I said, we are in South India, traveling with the Master. The great Hindu lawgiver Manu has outlined the duties of a king. He should shower amenities like Indra, Lord of the Gods, collect taxes gently, and imperceptibly, as the sun obtains vapor from water, enter into the life of his subjects as the wind goes everywhere, met out even justice to all, like Yama, god of death, bind transgressors in a noose like Varuna, Vedic deity of sky and wind, please all like the moon, burn up vicious enemies like the god of fire and support all like the earth goddess. I found in this very valuable and practical um, guidance for really how each of us can live our lives. Of course here it says these are the duties of the king but from that perspective it is the duty of anybody who perhaps has um, you know any form of leadership role. Now, what are leadership roles in a relationship as well? At some times, you are the one who has to guide the other person and sometimes the other has to guide you. There's always a give and take in everything in a home situation. If you are the parent, for example, you have a leadership role to play with all those that are under your care. If you're in a business, you have a leadership role to play. If you are even a team leader in a small little, even if you're an employee, there's almost always some place where to a certain degree, people depend on you. That's really an ideal way to look at leadership. Not so much that you have authority over somebody, but that there's somebody under your care. Somebody who perhaps to a certain degree needs you to help direct some aspect of that life. It could be a very tiny aspect. And so let's just look at that again from this, from that perspective. He should shower amenities like Indra. Now Indra, of course, is the Lord of, says Lord of the gods, but he's also specifically Lord of rain and thunder. And <laughs> but you know, it's just rain. It's just these showering of blessings. You should shower amenities like Indra. Now it's not raining all the time, isn't it? It's not like amenities are just pouring left, right and center. But when it does pour, it pours generously and it pours fully, completely and it pours over everybody. And so if you are in a role of some form or the other, think about that. What can I give? Not all the time, but every now and then this need to ensure that there's a generous giving and it's equal across the board, not specific, not favoritism per se, but just being able to open yourself up to all. Collect taxes. Now, in this give and take relationship, there's not only give. As somebody who is perhaps a little responsible for somebody else, our job is also to draw from them. This can be called a tax of sorts. To draw from them but when you're drawing from them because you know everybody's required to put out a little bit more if we don't ask anything of somebody if it's just here 
take, 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 then you actually, to a certain degree, we do them a great disservice because if you're only a receiver, you stop putting out energy. You start becoming very passive. You start having greater and greater expectations. You start getting very upset when those <laughs> expectations are not met. And especially even when we're talking in the spiritual sense, the relationship between guru and disciple, as a disciple, all the more. Don't look for the amenities that are being showered upon you. Look for the taxes <laughs> that you perhaps have to offer. But in this particular case, collect taxes gently. If you are helping people, guiding them to whatever, perhaps something that they need to offer in return, be gentle about it. It's not an easy thing to draw the best out of people. And it's not an easy thing to draw something from them that they don't want to give. That's what a tax is. Like, who wants to give a tax? Like, if the, government, if the government today decided, we're going to abolish all taxes, I mean, that budget would be the most popular budget ever. But, you know, it, right now we're happy with, oh boy, they didn't raise the taxes. I mean, that itself is great. But that's the reality. None of us want to give. We do want to take. But as somebody responsible, it is your responsibility also to be able to draw from them. But we must do it gently and imperceptibly. I like that word, imperceptibly. It means the person doesn't even know that you're trying to draw from them. That you're just giving them little ways and you're just telling them little things that they don't even realize. What you're trying to do is draw out from them something greater, something more. This isn't like, you need to do this because this is for your good. None of that stuff. Just gently, oh, what if we did it this way? Oh, would you mind if? And, you know, and little by little, the person doesn't even realize and they're already giving. And now the giving feels good because they realize that it's not being asked of them, but that their own soul feels uplifted in the giving. And this is done as the sun obtains vapor from the water. How sweet is that? Water ko pata bhi nahi chal That it's being evaporated up. And then what happens? Indra comes in and it comes back down as rain, as amenities. And you see this circle, it's a very subtle circle. But neither could exist without the other. You cannot shower on people if they have nothing to return because only when they return do they have space to actually receive what you will shower upon them. So you could give a lot to people and we've seen this in our lives, haven't we? We give, we give, we give, but the person just can't receive because there is no space because they don't know how to give as well. And so this is a beautiful cycle of awareness to keep in our lives. Enter into the life of his subjects as the wind goes everywhere. Again, get to know people, but not so much. It's not like the wind is, oh, what a shuju up to and what a shuju need. And the wind, the wind's so impersonal. The wind isn't like, Beta shujo, tujhe kya aaja, mera beta. You know, it's like, oh, how can I help you? What? Oh, ko chod lago. Oh, you. I mean, the wind's not getting into my life on my personality level. The wind is just around me. When I need it, it's there, I'm breathing it in, it's flowing through me. I'm not even aware. I'm not thinking, oh, thank God, the wind. Oh, the wind. Let me just breathe the wind in everywhere. You know? 
Oh, oh, so winter, so sweet to me, so kind to me. Oh, it thinks about me all the time. No, it doesn't. So this idea of entering into the life of people around you, it's also an impersonal state that you have to, you have to know what they're up to, but you're not meddling in their lives. So it's very important. A king cannot meddle in the lives of his subjects. He has to allow them free will, even while he watches, even while he sees what's going on, even while they're making mistakes. In fact, especially when they're making mistakes. You do not meddle. Be like the wind, present to hold them when the need arises, but impersonal enough that their lives and their processes continue un without any interference. Where are we? Met out even justice to all like Yama. This is a tricky one, especially for each of us. It's not our job to met out justice first and foremost, but that's what's interesting about Yama. It's not so much that he's like, all right, they come, yeah, you know, this is. He's the law of Dharma itself. The law of Dharma is the fairest law that exists. The law of karma is subservient to the law of dharma. Now, karma is punishment and reward, punishment and reward, punishment and reward. The law of dharma is how do I bring you out of the circle of punishment and reward? Because what happens in punishment and reward is it is fear-based or it is gift-based. You know, whatever you want. And that relationship is not a healthy relationship. Yama is different. Yama is not karma. And why he's called the Lord of Death to a certain degree is because he gives us respite from, from the craziness for a little while. He's like, oh, let me let you leave this body for a little while. You've done enough. Let me give you some time off. Let me try again. So this isn't like, oh, justice like Yama. Matlab, I have to have my ledger and I have to write down every wrong that you've done and every right that you've done. And now I have to calculate it, move this number over. Huh? X, Y, Z. Okay, 32. You know, it's not that. It's how do I help you rise above this? reward and punishment cycle. That's true justice because it's about uplifting and it's not about calculating and that's why it's not about judgment. Bind transgressors with a noose like Varun. Varun is the Vedic deity of sky and wind. I imagine he probably has a noose. I, I don't know how he, I don't have a visual image of Varun, but bind transgressors in a noose. Again, I find that very interesting. Transgressors, somebody who has done something wrong, somebody who's transgressed certain laws, certain principles, bind transgressors. Again, it's not about hurting them, He's not saying kill them, He's not saying throw them in some sort of a jail, bind them. In our lives, I think the greatest transgressors, I feel, are, is negativity. I think that's the most, I don't know, toxic vibration that's present that we can create. 
is just and the idea of binding it is holding it so that it doesn't infect others you know master would say avoid negative people like the plague i mean that's a very strong statement it isn't like negative people aren't so good you know try your best not to be around them too much avoid them like the plague because what was the plague highly contagious it spread it destroyed it completely ravaged the lands i think he didn't allow any disciple yeah he had this ashram. he he puts them he put them in quarantine yeah. i think as he said it like yeah. don't come to the ashram when you are going through negativity like or a mood stay away i mean don't don't come with your disease i mean i when i read that i was a little bit like wow he was <laughs> quite strong about that but that's yeah. the thing it's like buying yeah. them <laughs> now, i'm not gonna hurt you i'm not chastising you for being the way you are i'm not you know punishing you but i'm binding you and that's again it's a very you see how just it's a conscious reality now again it's not our job let's bind our own negativity it's not like this room negative not so much you know the true leadership is really being a leader of your own consciousness bind that reality inside you hold it so that it doesn't spread it doesn't infect anything else please all like the moon <laughs> i guess the moon is pleasing mm -hmm. what's the quality of the moon though what's the one quality of the moon very different from everything else is that it is ever changing i guess you can't ask i'm, I'm like waiting for you to respond to me but you can't respond it's ever changing Please all like the moon, which means constantly relating to what the person needs. Always shifting. All right, now this, now this person needs that, now this. Pleasing them, not so much their egos, but again, putting all this other stuff. And it's, it's, it's down here. It's after everything else has happened. Now learn how to work with people all right you need to be a little less here you need to be a little more there now i'm the full moon now i'm the no moon no moon is also a moon where no light is shining and so there's this constant adjustment that has to happen not just unlike the sun which is just perfect just giving 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 light 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 the moon's adjusting changing shifting and being appropriate to whatever the person truly needs burn up vicious enemies like the god of fire i guess that's pretty self-evident don't burn anybody please and support all like the earth goddess just hold people always hold them when swamiji created ananda he laid the most important foundation of ananda with two principles the first which is applicable here is people are more important than things and this is a very very hard principle it sounds very flowery you know yeah it's nice but it's a very hard principle to truly understand people are more important than things and when we say things we mean everything else <laughs> there's people and then there's everything else 
your opinion, a project, the organization, the work that needs to be done, people are more important than things. And we must learn to invest in people. Invest your energy, your time in a person. Don't invest it in a project alone. Swami said, only create a project if you know it will be beneficial to the people who will be involved in it. And that was why he constantly said, okay, now let's do this, now let's do that. And kept moving that energy forth. So this one paragraph is just such a beautiful, beautiful, balanced way for each of us to learn to live. So when Manu, this great lawgiver who is, you know, nowadays because he gave the caste system, which we will also talk about just briefly, kind of we feel that nah, he didn't quite know what he was talking about, classifying people and boxing them into these ways. But you just see the, the balance that he tried his best to bring. And it would be nice to have this paragraph somewhere or read it every now and then because it's easy to get stuck in one or the other. I'm either too much of a giver or I'm not a giver at all or I'm constantly judging and or so forth. And just kind of see, oh, where am I and what can I do to get out of one of these that I have gotten stuck in? Anything you want to add? In war, a king should not fight with poisonous or fiery weapons, nor kill weak or unready or weaponless foes or men who are in fear or who pray for protection or who run away. That's a lot of horrors. <laughs> yes. In war, now, do we ever have to be in war? Yes. <laughs> Boy, are we constantly at war? But there are times when there's arguments. There are times when there's misunderstandings, there's disharmony, there's difference of opinions. That's war. For us, that's war. We don't need to be going anywhere to fight some foreign enemy. Here, every day, we have plenty of war. So in war, what am I to do? When I'm in an argument, when I have to kind of work out a disharmony with people, do not fight with poisonous or fiery weapons. What is a poisonous weapon? Criticism. What's poisonous? Mm. When we want to, you know, just really want to hurt them. You know, that poison, we blacken it. When we don't have reason, when we don't have truth on our side, what do we do? Poison. We go back to the past, we dig up all the dirt, we, you know, just refer to our notes. <laughs> 1969, you know, we love it. I mean, we're still living in Pakistan, and we're then also living Muslim. I mean, we're just living in a world that doesn't exist. We love that. We love that stuff. And so poisonous weapons is a no. Fiery weapons. What is a fiery weapon? Anger is a fiery weapon. Raising your voice is a fiery weapon. Anything that agitates you is a fiery weapon. So no poison, no fire. Okay. Nor kill weak or unready or weaponless. So when you're looking and you're working out with somebody, if you have the upper hand, do not kill them. 
do not hurt them, do not destroy them. If they are unready, don't fight them. If they are weaponless, if they don't have a response back for you, don't take that moment like, oh, and you're suddenly realizing, yeah, I'm winning this argument. <laughs> That's the time to step back. When you've made your point, oh yeah. Or men who are in fear. This is a nice thing, especially for, uh, I feel, parents and children. You know, just judge when the child is moving into a stage of fear. That's the time just before that to step away from it. Otherwise, that fear becomes poison in them. And those who pray for protection, when somebody says, I'm sorry, cut them. And those who run away, let it be. They've gone, if they can't handle it, don't chase them, don't be behind them, to finish it off. War should be resorted to only as a last resort. Again, if it gets to the point where you actually have to, you know, bring out something that's a little um, more just a conversation, see if that's absolutely needed. And results are always doubtful in war. I like how he's put it in there. Just because you stop this war doesn't mean you're going to win. Results are always doubtful. So be mindful of that. Sometimes, you know, I think I have the upper hand over Narayani, but then <laughs> results are doubtful. She brings something in and suddenly I realize I don't know what I'm talking about. And there it is. The war is done and I am vanquished. So just be mindful. Don't always think you know what you're talking about and you have the right perspective. Results are always the origin of the caste system formulated by the great legislator Manu are admirable, or was admirable, sorry. Was is an important word here, was when it was formulated. He saw clearly that men are distinguished by natural evolution into four great classes. By natural evolution, as the soul journeys from darkness to light, Naturally, there will be an evolution. Nobody jumps from darkness to light, just as the sun doesn't go from midnight to noon. The sun has a natural evolution. Little light, little light, little light, little light, more light, more light, more light, most light. And so it's just, it's very natural. Nowhere is this saying, now the sun can only shine this much. And here the sun can only shine this much. No, we don't block the sun. We're not boxing the sun in. We see the arc and we say, what's the big deal here? So there's that natural evolution that we're just being made aware of. And those classes are those capable of offering service to society through their bodily labor. And he titled that the Shudra class. Those who serve through mentality, skill, agriculture, trade, commerce, business, life in general, they were the Vaishyas. Those rulers and warriors were the Kshatriyas. And those of contemplative nature, spiritually inspired and inspiring, were the Brahmins. Neither birth nor sacraments nor study, nor ancestry can decide whether a person is twice born, which is a Brahmin, Dvija, born a second time, born again. The Mahabharata declares, character and conduct only can decide. 
Wow. So it's very it's clear. Something. I don't know where, how we could have completely gone this astray mm -hmm. in our implementation or understanding of the caste system because it's just saying neither birth nor sacraments nor study nor ancestry. What decides? Character and conduct. Basically, your behavior, I guess, and your consciousness. Yeah, you, the, how your consciousness is expressed. So, it's a beautiful, it really is a beautiful flow of awareness to tune into. Again, not for anybody else, but yourself. Throughout the day, you will realize you are a Shudra also, you are a Vesha also, you are a Kshatriya also, you are a Brahmin also. Throughout the day, each of these realities will play out. We all need to use our bodies. We all need to know how to use the physical energy to make things happen. And that's the reality and that's the only reality that we're able to express in that moment. That's the Shudra energy, that's the Muladhar Chakra, which is earth element. When we are using the mind a lot and it's all about transactions and who's winning and who's gaining and if I give this, this is what I'll receive. All of us do that. All of us do that. That's the Vaishya consciousness. When our hearts are a little bit open and the energy is up here and we're thinking more about others, how can I take care of people? How can I protect them? How can I uplift them? How can I serve them? That's the Kshatriya quality and vibration. And then, of course, when we're only thinking of God, and when we're able to see God in everyone and everything, that's the Brahman consciousness. And the possibilities for each of us to express them all, but then each of us have a default setting also. We can go wherever, we can, you know, it's not like a Brahman never needs to use his body or never gets upset or never thinks about a transaction. Of course he does. But his general consciousness is a little more uplifted in that particular way. And so it's wonderful for us to feel and see. And what's lovely about this flow is that if you feel that your energy is at one level, then you know what the next step to do is to lift it up a little higher when the energy is completely stuck. When people are in depression, for example, that's a very classic Shudra kind of quality of Tamas. When the energy is low and you're just feeling you know, just the world's just the worst place to be in. What are you going to do at that time? At that time, you need the Vesha. You can't, I can't say, well, just get up and meditate. No, it's not going to work. You can't become a Brahmin from a Shudra. Oh, what's the next thing that I do? Oh, I, I just go out and I gain something and I put energy out. That's what the Vesha does. What can I get from this and how much can I make out of this? And just go and do something of that nature. Go be transactional with the world. And then suddenly energy starts to move. And then maybe you can go into now see how you can serve others. Now see. And so on and so forth. It's a beautiful, beautiful, again, state of consciousness to be made aware of. And definitely not to be boxing people in. Again, remember the arc of the sun, remember the flow of the seasons, remember anything in this world that we classify. Oh, it's summer. Nobody comes up to us and says, well, it also gets cold sometimes in summer and it's also dark in summer. And yeah, <laughs> right now it's summer. It's a flow of energy. It's happening. Soon it'll be fall, then it'll be winter, then it'll be spring, then it'll be summer again. And it's just going on and on. 
And we don't have to get stuck in anything. But we do have to be aware that there is a flow. And if I can cooperate with that flow, perhaps I learn to lift my awareness and my consciousness further up. Manu instructed society to show respect to its members insofar as they possessed wisdom, virtue, age, kinship, or lastly, wealth. So these are the reasons to respect someone. Again, so just fascinatingly interesting. Such minute detail. Like, who needs to know? All right, these are the people to respect. <laughs> you know, I mean, which textbook needs that information? But for some reason, Manu thought it's an important thing to put in. Because it's true. We don't know who to respect. We respect worldly power and we look for worldly power. Oh, and we respect people who are already being respected by others. We say, oh, this must be person of respect because respect we have no idea how to judge. And so here he says, somebody who possesses wisdom, first kind of level, first stage. If somebody has wisdom, that's worthy of your respect. Somebody who has virtue, see how they live, how they conduct themselves, their behavior. That's somebody to respect. Somebody who has age. What does age mean? That they're older? No. Those who have gained more experience than you have are worthy of your respect. Those who've gone through already what you've gone through doesn't mean that they know more than you. But you see, just going through it and gaining experience and having lived it and perhaps still holding yourself in an uplifted manner past that, they are very much worthy of our respect. And kinship, way down there, huh? kinship means your relatives, those that you share a common bond with parents, brothers, you know, cousins, whoever it is. In our particular case, we would say more our spiritual brothers and sisters are very worthy of our respect. And finally, wealth. Wealth is an interesting one too, but wealth is symbolic. Wealth is somebody who has or knows how to put enough energy in this world to be able to draw from this world a consciousness of prosperity. And abundance and that is worthy of not because they have money but because they know the laws of attraction and that is worthy of our respect because these are the people putting out energy those people in this world forget what kind of people they are because they are all kinds what's running this world on the most basic material level today money just a bit, you know, what runs economies, what runs our realities, what allows us to have electricity and sit in this home and be comfortable. At the end of the day, those who are putting out energy, they are the one running the energetic transactional movement of this entire world. And that is worthy of respect. Respect meaning not worship, as we sometimes mm -hmm. get confused. Respect means I also want to move energy. <laughs> and so I ask, how do I do what you're doing? How do I also put out more? And I also learn this law of prosperity, of attraction, of abundance. Riches in Vedic India were always despised if they were hoarded 
or unavailable for charitable purposes. Ungenerous men, this is a beautiful line, of great wealth were assigned a low rank in society. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. Ungenerous men of great wealth were assigned a low rank in society. I mean, it wasn't about the amount of money they had. It was what did they do with what they had. So somebody who was poorer but more generous would have a higher standing in society because it was about how they use that energy, how they use that prosperity. And if it was hoarded or unavailable for charitable purposes, it was despised. What a society that might have been at that time. So clear. No one's confused. Everyone knows this person. <laughs> Nobody talks to this guy because he's, un you know, he's just not generous at all. And you could see a society that's just beautifully created <clears throat> to function seamlessly. Doesn't mean there won't be issues. You know, they're talking about war, they're talking about all the, everything that we're going through. But even within those realities, everybody agreed upon how they will be expressed. Now, true that Manu lived in a higher age. So for us, we can't actually get society to follow this. What we can do is get our own consciousness to follow this. And then we individually will live in that higher age like Manu. Then we will live in Satyug even while Dwapar is going on. Even while, if you believe, Kalyug is going on. And that's the intention behind this in the true analysis. Let's go to the last page now. See if we can finish this chapter. But it's just, it's filled with so much, it's hard to just want to skip over all these things. And this last is just two beautiful stories of a saint. Many quaint stories of Sadashiva, a lovable and fully illumined master, are still current among, among the South Indian villagers. Immersed one day in Samadhi on the bank of the Kaveri River, Sadashiva was seen to be carried away by a sudden flood. Weeks later, he was found buried deep beneath a mound of earth. As the villagers, as the villagers' shovels struck his body, the saint rose and walked briskly away. That is like, flood takes him away, now he's buried in earth. <laughs> Not telling anybody, bachao, bachao, help, look at me. <laughs> then some day after weeks, some villagers came, dug his body out. All right, thank you. <laughs> Just going on with his life. But this next one is a really fun one. Sadashiva never spoke a word or wore a cloth. One morning, the nude yogi unceremoniously entered the tent of a Mohammedan chieftain. His ladies screamed in alarm. The warrior dealt a savage sword thrust at Sadashiva, whose arm was severed. So with his sword, he just cut Sadashiva's arm completely. The master departed unconcernedly. Overcome by remorse, the Mohammedan picked up the arm. So the arm's lying on the floor. Sadashiva's already gone completely. <laughs> like nothing has happened. This guy picks up his severed arm. 
and runs after him. And the yogi quietly inserted his arm into the bleeding stump. When the warrior humbly asked for some spiritual instruction, Sadashiva wrote with his finger on the sands, because he didn't speak, of course. And he wrote, do not do what you want, and then you may do what you like. It doesn't get more cryptic than this. I'm sure that that fellow was wondering, what should I do? Do not do what you want, and then you may do what you like. What does this mean? You tell us. <laughs> if only I knew, then I would do what I like, or I can't do what I like because I'm constantly doing what I want. I'm still thinking about that. My God. You know, we've been so studying Patanjali, and of course, we've been talking so much about these vrittis, vritti this, vritti that. You know, it's a little like overwhelming with these vrittis, but if we see that vritti as what we want, it's like it's a draw of a vortex of energy that constantly pulls us mm. into essentially desires, but not desires and I want this thing or I want that thing, just kind of predetermined flows, just loops and patterns that we've created for ourselves. It's very hard to break away from them until and unless we don't break away from them. Because what is a vritta? Remember what we're talking about. It is this pre-committed vortex of energy, but it's your energy. It's not like some energy that you've put into motion. It's very much your own consciousness, no longer able to move and rise, but stuck. Your consciousness stuck on this vibration. Your consciousness stuck here. Your consciousness stuck here. And that's where most of us are. And so when there is no energy really in the spine and we're just stuck in these same patterns, there's no freedom, you see. What are we seeking the most? The other day we were doing a corporate workshop for some you know, little um, higher-ups, executive levels in these corporates. And we were talking to them about they've achieved everything. You know, they've got the money, they've got the power, they've got whatever they want, but they're still not satisfied. They're still seeking, they're still seeking. What are they seeking? What, is most, what are most people who have everything seeking? are seeking no longer to be influenced by the world. You see, that's what, they, that's what power is. I influence the world and I'm running things. But all of us are so influenced by it in terms of even just disease. Can't get rid of that easily. Death, age, you know, the mind with its, all its ramifications. And so that freedom that we're seeking is the ability to do what we would like to do. But because all our consciousness and all our life force and all the prana is already stuck in the want, there is nothing available to actually then be able to live in that freedom of this is what I would like to do. These are where the masters live, right? They're doing the same things we're doing. Master went and created an organization. He went around and created a restaurant and he went around and opened a, this center here. I mean, it's not like he was doing, it wasn't like he had his wand and he was like, all right, you know, they went and did exactly what we're doing. But they didn't do anything out of a want. They just did what they liked. Because they're not influenced. They're completely outside 
the natural order of things. So they could just come in at any stage and say, this is what I would like to see happen, and it happens. And this is where all of us want to be. Where we're not influenced by the world, but we influence it. But until we don't get out of these loops we've created, I want this, I need this, until that time, there will be no energy. And so we see in people, and it's a process, of course, we see in people who have understood renunciation, understood the ability to keep your life force a little withdrawn and held, you see that there are people who could do more and more of what they actually like. You see them happier, freer, less concerned, less caught up if even the things that they want to see happen don't happen. Because those vrittis are weaker. They've not been given as much energy as those of us, perhaps, who are constantly living in those same loops. And you see, as you start to withdraw energy away from it, as the vritti gets weaker and weaker, it's your own consciousness that's free now to express more of itself. And when you've completely neutralized the vritti, as Patanjali is asking each of us to do, then all of your consciousness is free to express itself as it would like no longer as we want it to. That's a very subtle distinction, yet it makes the entire world of a difference. So this is the advice Sadashiva just gives walking one day with his hand cut off and then he just inserts his hand back. Everything's good and new because he can do whatever he likes. He can walk in nude into a Mohammedan's tent you and I can't be walking around nude into other people's bedrooms. Or at least, I don't think so. Be worth a try and see what happens. But he can because he can do whatever he likes. Because he's not bound. The world holds no power against him. The Mohammedan was uplifted to an exalted state of mind and understood the saint's paradoxical advice to be a guide to soul freedom through mastery of the ego. The last and final story of this chapter, I guess we won't get to see the next one. The village children once expressed a desire in Sadashiva's presence to see the Madura religious festival 150 miles away. The yogi indicated to the little ones that they should touch his body. Lo, instantly, the whole group was transported to Madura. I imagine this is Madurai, but Madura must have been there, the more British name for it. The children wandered happily among the thousands of pilgrims. In a few hours, the yogi brought his small charges home by his simple mode of transportation. The astonished parents heard the vivid tales of the procession of images and noted that several children were carrying bags of Madura sweets. An incredulous youth derided the saint and the story. There's always one of those guys saying, I don't believe any of this. What nonsense. The following morning, he approached Sadashiva. Master, he said scornfully, why don't you take me to the festival even as you did yesterday for the other children? Sadashiva complied. The boy immediately found himself among the distant city throng. But alas, 
Where was the saint when the youth wanted to leave? The very boy reached his home by the ancient and prosaic method of foot locomotion. He had to walk back that 150 miles. So a little bit of a little lesson. You can get what you want. This is this is pretty much. You can get what you want, but then you can't do what you like. Those are our two options. If you go for what you want, then you can't do what you like. If you can draw your energy away from what you want, then you start to learn to be able to do what you like. Of course, these words are random and arbitrary. You can assign them whatever definition you want. But the principle is very important to tune into. Where the energy goes naturally, where you're bound, where there's a compulsion, where you don't have strength, inner strength enough to be able to hold, whether it's a reaction, whether it's a thought, whether it's how you see the world, whether it's your desires that you feel, this deep need to see fulfilled over and over again, whatever expression that want may take, if you don't have inner strength to hold back from them, then you really can't do much in this world. Then the world just does you. And sometimes the world does good things through you, sometimes it does bad things, sometimes it may make you rich, sometimes it may make you poor. But it's still you not doing any of it. It's just the world cycling through you over and over again, spitting you out, chewing you up once again. And, you know, you can do that. Or you can walk naked into a Mohammedan chieftain's bedroom. It's one of your two choices, whatever one works for you. Narayani, you want to bring this chapter to a close? <laughs> uh, I haven't heard a peep out of you. Maybe I haven't let you say a word. No, it was beautiful. Very powerful, actually. Um, don't know what to add to what so beautifully was shared, but just once again, how constantly we need to watch out for our consciousness, because that's really what we are working with all the time. And if we learn how to behave, and not necessarily what our body is saying, what our likes and dislikes, you know, not just even the energy that we project, but the consciousness that is constantly playing out in the back of our minds. And, and, and how is it? Is it refined? Is it uplifted enough? Is it kind enough? I mean, it's, it's like almost, that's where we need to pay attention the most, especially when we get distracted by what other people are doing, their personalities. We get so caught up there and rather than withdraw our consciousness a little bit more and just as Yogananda said, learn to remain in the self, you know, at that center of your being and, and work with your own consciousness. Become a, Brahm, become a Brahmin and, and that's what meditation really does. It just changes your consciousness, changes your perception of reality, of people, of yourself, your own relationship with the divine and the great one. So, so I think the importance of always watching out 
for your consciousness and this stream of thoughts that you are constantly channeling. I mean, what radio station are you tuning into? The negativity, the sutras, the vaishas, or whether where the Brahmins live, which is not a position, it's not a title, it's not material things, it's a consciousness that I, I know each one of us is striving to develop, but but it requires a 24 hours, you know, we have to put a watchman there <laughs> sitting, you know, in our consciousness and make sure that those unwanting, you know, guests, you know, in the form of negativity, judgmental, laziness, you know, lethargy and all those things don't come into our consciousness and they are being pushed away. So, yeah. It's kind of what I you think, suggested during the Patanjali yeah, class. Yeah, it was mostly that. You, that's the theme. Yeah, that's the 